Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello and welcome back to The Plays The Thing here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I'm David Kern and I am joined by Heidi White and Tim McIntosh. Heidi, Tim, how's it going? Going great. Thanks, Very David. Well, David. So I wish people could, like when I look at my screen right now, I see every, everyone has to put in a name and I wish people could see Tim's name because I really wanted to refer to you as the Burnham Woodbra on... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> on the show, <laughs> he did not. Let's just say he did not put Tim McIntosh in the thing where he has to put his name. So, that's um, great. So the background, <laughs> listeners, is that we've tried various. We've tried using Zoom for our recordings, and we've tried this other program called ZenCaster. But for whatever reason, it just kind of the connection was kind of troublesome to us. But now we're back on Zen, ZenCaster, and we can enter nicknames and. Angelina and I used to do this a lot. We used to try to make each other giggle with stupid names. And I am a master at stupid names. <laughs> uh, this is oh, exciting. I feel as like any playwright. Heidi. Right? The gauntlet's I know, been thrown right? down. I accept it. Challenge it. Accept <laughs> I love it. <laughs> well, let's, let's dive right in because we are here to talk about Act 5 of Macbeth. And I have uh, three sort of central questions that have been pinging around in my brain that I need you guys to help me sort out. And I think that they will, they will take us into some of these scenes. Um, act five is uh, a little unusual in Shakespeare's, you know, for Shakespeare, in, it's what, 10 scenes. I mean, mm-hmm. I, and they're, they're pretty short. There's a lot of uh, rapid fire stuff going on, a lot of back to back quick scenes. Um, although I don't know of any other way for scenes to be other than back to back, I suppose. But, <laughs> The, but it's a little bit unusual and you had you have this long act four and but it's also for as long as act five is compared to other Shakespeare plays it is also uh, very hectic I would say mm-hmm. it's a little crazy and there's there's a lot going on 
So there's a lot to talk about. Uh, don't forget that if you uh, if you have questions, uh, let, let us know. We're going to post a thread over on the Close Reads Facebook page, and we will answer as many questions as we get. These, these Shakespeare episodes sometimes don't, don't get a lot of questions because people listen to them out of order and when they're teaching it and so forth. So if we do get some questions, we will do a Q&A episode, um, even if it's just you know a half hour one or something. So we uh, post those questions on the thread over on the Facebook group, or you can email them to us at closereadspodcasts at gmail.com, and we will get to as many as uh, we have time for. Um, all right, so Act 5, Macbeth. Here's, here's my... Um, the first of my three questions that I that I need you guys to help me sort out. Can you can you can you can 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 I sit back on the chair here and just ask some questions and you guys help me sort this stuff out? Would that be? I don't know. I, I'm willing to try, David. Yeah. Okay. Because I've got all kinds of questions about sanity mm. and insanity, and then I was wondering: is insanity and lack of sanity the same thing? Hmm. But anyway, that takes us on a different different trajectory. But here's my first question. It's about the idea of guilt. Hmm. By the end of this play, between Lady Macbeth and Macbeth, who is more guilty? Not as in who is the most guilty for having committed things. We know they all, but they both were sort of, I don't I don't even know if we should say equally, but they're both very guilty in terms of what they did. We know they did it. I'm not mm-hmm. talking about, let's let's be a jury. I'm talking about, in terms of their inner inner souls, mm-hmm. the feeling of guilt, the sense of guilt, which of them do you think has more has a higher degree of guilt by the end of the play? It's a good. I question. didn't prep them with this question yeah. ahead of time. Yeah. Tim, let me ask you this. I want to I want to ask it maybe a little bit differently for you yeah. because yeah. You, you've played Macbeth. Yeah. And I'm curious to what degree you brought a sense of guilt to that character. Not necessarily your own guilt, <laughs> but that you played him <laughs> as if he had some guilt. I mean, I think it's pretty clear in the text that, that to varying degrees, they, they express um, complicated feelings about what they've done. I'll put it, yeah. I'll put it that yeah. way. So I'm curious how you played that. Did you play it as if he, the Macbeth was feeling guilty? Oh, yeah. For sure, but I think that a change happens to him. I think guilt combined with terror that he's going to be revenged upon drives him to go see the witches again in four one, and then something really remarkable happens. He gets this prediction from the witches that he's indestructible. He's not going to lose. He the, the he gets two predictions that he basically will be on the throne till Burnham Wood comes to Dunsinane, Dunsinane his castle. Woods don't move, trees don't uproot, so that's not going to happen. And he has no cause to fear any any man of woman born. Well, everyone's born of a woman, so he also has no fear there. So his guilt, I think, is masked by this sense of invulnerability that he gets from the witches. Now, does he actually believe that he's completely invulnerable? That could be disputed, but I think at least his guilt from 4-1 until Macduff reveals himself until we get until we get Burnham Wood moving, 
his guilt is masked. Huh. Which is not an answer to your question. Well, what? So uh, masked? Uh, he? You mean he? He has sort of buried it, and yeah. he, he's not. Right. He's not right. admitting. He's not admitting it. Or if he feels it, he doesn't have to. How do I say it? He doesn't really have to deal with it because, um, no one's going to kill me. I'm not going to suffer the revenge upon me that I, um, of Banquo's children of Macduff revenging his family because they're of women born. I've got nothing to fear from them. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Now, whether he actually feels guilt, I mean, like, I think I would say that he has this like really deep seated kind of bubbling, um, heated guilt that is so overwhelming that he kind of can't even deal with it. And the easiest way to not deal with it is just to, you know, think what a great warrior he is and to concentrate on that. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Heidi, what do you think? What do you think his, well, I mean, let's make, let me go back to the original question for you. Mm-hmm. Tim's touched on Macbeth, Macbeth himself a little bit. Do you, right. Who do you think is, has a higher degree of guilt by the end of the play? The higher visible manifestation of guilt is Lady Macbeth. Um, she is, you know, in five one, she's sleepwalking. She can't wash the spot out of her. You know, the most one of the most famous lines of the play, the out damned spot line. Like she can't. All the perfumes of Arabia cannot sweeten this little hand, which harkens back to the scene in which. Macbeth is feeling so much guilt after killing Duncan in the first half of the play. And he says, I can't wash the blood off my hands. And she says, a little water clears us of this deed. But here in 5-1, we have kind of her full chiastic movement, the downward trajectory of her character. She's the one that can't sleep now. She's the one who is pacing around trying to wash her hands. It's just such a poignant scene, this objective correlative of of, of her internal guilt and shame that she can't wash her hands. Like this is this is why Lady Macbeth is one of the most coveted female roles in the theater is this scene. So by far, the manifestation of guilt in Act 5 is with Lady Macbeth. But as Tim pointed out, that doesn't mean that there's not some kind of very deep wound, existential wound and void in Macbeth, which of course there is. And we do see evidence of that as as Act 5 unfolds. So, Yeah, yeah. It, It seems to me like Lady Macbeth, with her guilt, turns inward. And she yes. snaps. And Macbeth, I think, for a while turns inward and knows that he can't handle it. Maybe he, I mean, it, we've got evidences that he's going insane when the ghost of Banquo shows up at the, at the dinner table. Um, and his response to the ghost is just, he acts absolutely crazy. But rather than continue to go inward, he seeks something external. The witches, the witches have this prophecy of invulnerability, and he can remain objective with some. He can pursue something outside of himself, slaughter, defense of his castle, so that he has doesn't have to go inward and risk snapping like Lady Macbeth does. 
Right. I agree. Well, and I think that this is another layer of the contemplation of what does it mean to be a man um, in this play. And we talked about Macduff last time and how what Macduff says about manhood is, I must feel it like a man. I must feel the full weight of grief. I must feel the full weight of loss. I will avenge the death of my family, but I, I must feel it like a man. And here Macbeth in this scene is not feeling anything like a man. He's completely inhuman. Like he has lost the ability to, um, whether he's lost or slain, like he's so distorted his own soul through his actions that he doesn't feel it like a man. Hmm. What scene are you, which scene? Are you talking about the like a man? That yeah. feel it like a man? That's the end of, uh, that's three? Act four, scene three, yes. Yeah. Um, and line 221, Malcolm says, dispute it like a man. And Macduff says, I shall do so, but I must also feel it as a man. And that's simp- that is just a few lines before Act 5 when we have, the, uh, as Tim pointed out, Lady Macbeth going so inward that she has lost the kind of the functional part of her humanity. And Macbeth is so functional that he's lost the inward ability to feel and experience what he's done. I I mean, how can he? Again, that's that existential void. There's no coming back. And I think he knows that. And so that's, he is, he's, he's practically inhuman in this act. Yeah. In, in four. Yeah. In five is what I mean. Or five. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. He becomes sort of robotic. Yes. And so full of rage and oh, uh, yeah. and and this utter inability to connect with anything other than his own uh, self-protectiveness. He is simply just a, a, a being of – a creature of instinct at this point. Hmm. You know, it's interesting because my second question is related to – by the end of the play, which of these two characters is the most themselves? Huh. So did one of them change throughout the play, you know, more towards them towards being more of themselves, or and did someone change away from that? Um, it's, I guess this is all tied to the question of insanity. But it seems like in some ways Macbeth, he, you know, I guess the question is, what do you think he is at the beginning? <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. Um, that's kind of the, one of the age old questions that people debate is what was he capable of, you know, when the witches came to him? Was there something, was he susceptible to their influence because of something that was already there? Um, <clears throat> but then, there's, you know, there's this question even of, um, um, let's see, when the lady Macbeth is talking about in 5 1, the scene you mentioned. The smell of blood, this, she says, the, here's the smell of blood still. All the perfumes of Arabia will not sweeten this little hand. Um, let's see. And then the doctor, I think the doctor says, this disease is beyond my practice. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yet I have known those which have walked in their sleep who have died holily in their beds. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, it's beyond the it's beyond the, the doctor's capability to to deal with this you know with a with a regular old human disease it brings it brings back that the concept of um the supernatural which yes. we talked about last week so and these characters being caught up in something that's beyond you know the human capacity to deal with it and that i think that that is something there's the inner life that's being being um 
changed in a way that it can't deal with. And then with the supernatural, with the thing, you know, the, the, the regular things of this world. And then there's also just the, the sort of <clears throat> the human physical regular, um, I don't know why I said regular exactly, but just the, the physical human being bombarded by mm-hmm. the supernatural as well. And it's coming at them, it seems like, you know, both. I guess as would normally be the case, both the inner life the and, you know, the mental life and then the, I don't know exactly what I'm trying to say, but there's this, there's this multi-pronged way that the supernatural is, yes. is coming at them and, they're, and it's leading to this dissonance, right. I think is what I'm trying to say. Um, maybe it's not the, inner life and the outer life it's the maybe it's a spiritual life and a you know mental processing or something well and Um, david you mentioned something that stuck with me throughout all this whole recording because it's true for me as well which is that the way that i visualize this play in my head is fog and darkness and and the blasted heath the disordered land right and and this this like heavy kind of mysterious but not in a good way murky darkness that hovers over my imagination when i think about this play and i think that that's some of what you're getting at maybe that's why it's hard to articulate um the sense of the muddied waters between the natural world and the supernatural world and the impact and tim brought this up last week the impact that we can make in the supernatural world when we do something so distorted as lady macbeth and macbeth have done hmm. so like the the horses eating each other the like the the nature itself reflected in the land and in the characters and in their own soul is inverted and distorted and corrupted throughout this play. But it's hard to pinpoint the cause of that. Is it Macbeth's ambition? Is it Lady Macbeth's greed? Is it the fates? Is it the witches? Is it Hecate? What? You can't trace all the threads. They're all jumbled up. And I think that's what's fun about contemplating this play, but it does kind of... there's a heaviness to it. Hmm. I was thinking how, as you were talking, um, how when people make movies of this, oftentimes the setting seems sort of out of this world. Like there's something sort of um, out of Dante's Inferno in it sometimes. Even though it could be a castle, but the castle seems like it could be from the underworld or something. <laughs> I saw a production of this in Ashland, Oregon at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, which is like nationally renowned. It's just one of the best Shakespeare festivals. It's incredible. And their Macbeth, they had their scene work, their set work is always really remarkable. They had a, a bridge staircase that if you were looking at it from the audience's point of view, began about a story and a half up it was elevated this kind of bridge and it appeared from the left part of the stage and then it wrapped around it came to the right part of the stage and then it wrapped around in this circular staircase Mm. the backdrop was red but this bridge staircase there wasn't a square angle in the whole thing it was all wobbly and it was in every scene it wasn't you know a a tree that you could kind of pick up and take off the stage it was in every scene and it and it was black it looked like it was made of iron and it was such a beautiful set piece for all of the scenes because 
something was always misaligned. I mean, mm-hmm. there was just a physical feature that was constantly misaligned throughout the play. And that suits this play as yes, well. It does. I mean, maybe you should, maybe you could remove that, you know, for the like, act five, scene 10, when things are set right again. But even then, and maybe this is a question for us to discuss when we get to the end of this podcast, are things really set right when, mm-hmm. when Mac- Macbeth is killed? Is nature put back in order? Is the kingdom put back in order? I don't know. That's something that we can get to if we have time. Right. The the I think one of the part of part of what we're talking about here plays into the that question you're asking because if nature is in is in order, if the world is put back in order, then then part of that has to be a sort of rightly ordered relationship between nature the natural and the supernatural. Yeah. And it seems like those two things coming in contact with each other um, are both causes of disorder and also um, their relationship is disordered by the actions the characters take. And so right. the, there's a constant sense of dissonance created by that, of conflict beyond the regular conflict of the play, beyond just the traditional conflict in the traditional sense. And I think that that plays into the mystery and the, the sort of terror of the play mm-hmm. and also the the inability to identify readily or easily whether or not things are rightly ordered at the end. Right. You know, if you have a traditional mystery story or a traditional cop story or something and the detective could be um, a jerk, shall we say. Right. But in the end, he can solve the problem and he can get the good, the bad guy put away and they can figure out who done it. And, you know, even though he's not a great guy, you could you, essentially the, the, the novel says that the world is still put back together. And so in theory, Lady Macbeth, Macbeth, they die, they pay for what they did. Things should be put back to order, but it's that intersection between the supernatural and the natural, which seems to render um, more chaos that they can't be resolved just by putting away the guy, the, the bad guys, you know, making them pay for what right. they did. Right. Which I, I think that Shakespeare, because he has showed that these human choices to murder Duncan have caused this disruption or have at least exacerbated the disruption in nature, I think it's very interesting that he uses two seemingly unnatural events or, or, or prophecies of unnatural events the um, coming of Burnham Wood to Dunsinane and a man of no woman born um, being the kind of like resolution to our plot, the death of Macbeth. I, I wonder if Shakespeare is saying that, yes, not all of this was caught, not all of this was caused by human action alone, but gosh, human action, the murder of Duncan surely made the tear in the fabric of nature even worse. And now human action by these soldiers posing as Burnham Wood by Macduff being born of a cesarean section, um, causing justice to be done upon Macbeth. I wonder if Shakespeare is saying that human choice and human action can in some way reconcile this rupture in nature. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you're really onto something with that. 
um, which I think goes to, you know, kind of one of the age-old debates about Macbeth is whether this is a pagan play or a Christian play. And I think what you just said is exactly the argument for this being a profoundly Christian play, that there hmm. is a, a a redemptive result from human action, and and there is also an inverted result from human action, right? A, a diabolical result, as embodied by Macbeth and Lady Macbeth. But human action isn't the enemy. That's what you're saying. And I think that that, that the play makes that very clear. We can intervene in mm-hmm. the natural world in order to make things right, not just to disrupt and destroy. And that, I think, is, is the argument for Macbeth being at heart a play that upholds virtue and not a pagan worldview. Mm-hmm. Um, do you guys know that it's one of my favorite verses from the New Testament it's Romans. I could find the reference. I should know the reference. Um, creation looks as with an outstretched neck for the redemption of the sons of men. Mm-hmm. It's kind of it's kind of obscure in some ways, but it's really beautiful. It's this you know Paul is is laying out this long discourse about the relationship of. Um, the Jews to the law and the Gentiles being grafted into the promises, et cetera, et cetera. And after he's kind of laid out this whole plot, he then gives this brief address about that nature is also disrupted, but it's so interesting. It is looking, it's looking to what happens in the human world as sort of an evidence of what will happen to it. Mm-hmm. Nature is. It, he personifies nature, does Paul, um, saying that it's looking to what happens in the human world as evidence that it too will be made right or reconciled in some way. And I, I can't help but think of this that in reading the end of Macbeth, there is nature has gone haywire. But I do think that there is there will be some sense of settling after Macbeth has been removed from the throne, um, nature will be in some way put back in harmony. Mm-hmm. And I, I saw just one brief mention. I saw a production of Macbeth done one time. And at the end of the play, there's the kind of lineup of the restored kingdom and the soldiers who have done uh, away with Macbeth and Macbeth's head on a pike. But then they had the three witches kind of appear in the background and they're kind of milling around. And I think that's wrong. I don't think that that's, I think that um, conflicts with the message of the play. Mm-hmm. I would do on. that. Why, because why? I think the power of the witches has. Well, you can say it in one of two ways. The prophecy of the witches has come true. Burnham Wood came to Dunsinane. All the things they said to Macbeth and um, in Bank One, the opening scenes, all of those things have come true with the exception of um, the son of Banquo being restored to the throne. But we can see 
that's still a possibility. Flance is still alive. So the power of the witches has been, or the prophecy of the witches has been met. But it's the power of the witches, I think, is, should be muted significantly by the end of the play because justice has been done upon the perpetrator Macbeth and to have them kind of like their power signified through reappearing on the stage. It doesn't sit right with me. Hmm. Well, so this brings up another question that's that it might take a minute, but I think it'll come back around. Why did the witches want to concoct and enact this plot in the first place. Right. Right. That's why you have to go back to that. Have you guys seen um, Polanski's version? Yeah. Okay. So do you recall how that ends, Tim? What it no. ends? So it's been a long time since I watched this. Okay. So it's, it's Polanski. So it's, you know, pure nihilism. So it's <laughs> what um, the way, but I think it's kind of brilliant how he ends it. And this is actually in contradiction to what you just said, Tim. So there's multiple perspectives on the end of Macbeth, whether this is a redemptive ending, whether it is not. Um, so in Polanski's version, what he has is he has the witches in a cave up on the side of a cliff and you have to climb to get to them. And there's the scene of Macbeth climbing up to get there. So you have to, you know, put yourself at risk even to go see the witches. Mm. That's a pretty good touch in terms of how to stage it. Yeah. Um, so at the end of the play, after, after you know, everybody, this, this stage is littered with dead bodies, after Macbeth has been deposed and, and we have the right man on the throne with Malcolm, the closing scene right before the credits is Donald Bain, Malcolm's younger brother, and you only, you only see him in shadow. So the only reason you know that it's him is that Polanski staged the actor of Donald Bain as having a limp. So what huh. you see is this limping figure climbing up the side of the mountain to get to the witches. Really? So, of course, what you have is a, with the limp, you have him as the representation of the broken, limping, kind of patriarchal, flawed culture, still limping towards darkness, still putting itself in constant danger in order to access dark powers to get onto the throne. Huh. So, of course, the implication is the cycle is going to repeat itself again. Nothing has changed. All we've done is gotten rid of this tyrant. But here comes another one. So, and I, I, I think that's a valid interpretation of the end of Macbeth, given Malcolm's character. And given the fact that one of the big questions of the play is not just... Macbeth as a man, right? You know, man is this big word, the contemplation of what it means to be a man. But there's these other secondary characters on the periphery who are violent and disordered. Mm -hmm. And they mm -hmm. and the kingdom is left in their hands. Macbeth's the worst of the lot, but he's the product of a system that still continues after him. So that would be the argument. Now, I'd also just argued earlier in the and the show that this was a, that that there is that kind of internal centricity of the faith, and that this is a Christian play. And so, I, I'm more more throwing out different perspectives on Macbeth to say, hey, this play is like all Shakespeare, bottomless. There's multiple interpretations. You can see it as being fully resolved. You can see it as being just gotten rid of one tyrant in order to replace him with another. 
Well, so okay, if it's if that's not the if if we well, if it's not going to be that nihilistic cycle repeating itself, well, semi nihilistic cycle repeating itself ending. I mean, what clues are there that it's not that it, that is not going to happen again? Right. I mean, that's what part of the reason why I asked why do the witches want to do this in the first place? Right. And I are think, the witches yes. just after after chaos? Are they specifically after Macbeth? Um, they at, never know, and, present any other explanation. Of, they never say what they're after, and I think which Tim makes and I, it more terrifying. Yes, that, and Tim and I talked about that when when the on the episode that you missed when it was just the two of us that there is no. The, the witches never say what they're trying to accomplish. And just right, as you right. said, then that's, I mean, brilliant on Shakespeare's part uh, because it leaves it very ambiguous, especially the question of the ending. Because if they said what they were after and they didn't get it, then we could say, oh, there's a happy ending. Right? Yeah, yeah. So they they don't say we're trying to bring down Scotland. They don't all they say is we're going to is we're after Macbeth. So the only stated pur- purpose they give is is to fill Macbeth's soul with darkness and get him to perform a, a deed of great evil, which they succeed in doing. But then, as Tim pointed out, human interaction comes in and human action comes in and sets that right. The tyrant is killed. And there is a man who has displayed a, a modicum of virtue, Malcolm, on the throne. Well, the doctor, though, would say in five one that man can't reset it, right? Right. At the end of five one, he says, unnatural deeds do breed unnatural troubles. Right. Infected minds to their death pillows will discharge their secrets. More needs she the divine than the physician. God forgive us all. Mm-hmm. Um, remove from her the means of all annoyance and still keep eyes upon her. And that, you know, so the, the act five, which is where the resolution is supposed to, you know, I suppose play out or be communicated, begins with this this clear distinction with the doctor saying, the only thing that can solve this is the divine. Right. Which, interestingly so if, enough, if looking, they don't... Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, so if we're looking then at, at Malcolm as the one who sets things in order then maybe the cycle is going to continue because there is no, I mean, where is the divine interaction that, that uh, fulfills what the doctor is suggesting there? Right. Which is exactly what I was going to say, David, that the next, the next natural action would be then for the maidservant and the, and the doctor to call a priest, which they do not do. Mm. So I find that so interesting. All, Every time when I read this play, when I see this play performed, my biggest question, my core question mark to this play is, why doesn't Shakespeare ever bring in an antidote to the dark forces in this play? Hmm. So that's got to be intentional. Yeah, yeah. You know, Macbeth in um, Shakespeare's corpus belongs with the great tragedies. Yes. Yes, and they they may not be everyone's favorites, even though they should be. They you know <laughs> like they're, people pre- might prefer Much Ado About Nothing or Midsummer Night's Dream, but I think that the height of his creative career is the grouping of tragedies: Macbeth, Othello, Hamlet, Lear, and then he moves it kind of into fantasies or they're sometimes called romances later i think it's interesting that in this tragedy 
the evil is not explained as being purposeful. The witches just wreak havoc without much explanation. And I think it's also interesting that what one of the other great just evil characters in the tragedies is Iago from Othello. Uh-huh. And there's no explanation given about why he wants to take down Othello. I mean, he has a line, I hate the more. Uh-huh. But it's not an explanation of where that hate came from. He's he's his lieutenant. You know, he serves him. And in both of these plays, no explanation is given for radical human evil. And I think it's interesting mm-hmm. that in an earlier play, Richard III, which you mentioned last week, Heidi, the opening monologue, that beautiful opening monologue, now is the winter of our discontent made glorious summer by the son of York. Richard III lays out exactly what he's going to do and exactly why he's going to do it. He gives a causal explanation for everything that he pursues in the play. He basically, he's ugly and bored. Uh-huh. And so he's going to like pursue the highest land and the, the highest office in the land because he's ugly and bored. Mm-hmm. And, he, and he tells us. But yeah, what does it say that the central causes of evil in two of these great tragedies... And maybe we could make the case for Lear also that Lear's actions, eh, I think, I think they're more cause. We can say um, Cordelia just didn't give Lear the respect that he felt that he deserved and that launched him. But with these other two tragedies, what is it? Right. It's just kind of black madness and right. there's no cause. There's no like ultimate, it's, it, it's um, the Joker again from from Batman. He just huh. wants to watch the world burn. Yep, I agree, and I think your huh. point about Iago is really important. With and 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 I'm latching onto that because I'm also reading Crime and Punishment right now, which is the same thing with with Raskolnikov. So much cheery when, reading in your I life. I know, right? <laughs> Thank you. Um, that that's the same thing with Raskolnikov. He doesn't know why he did it. He did it out of this blackness in his soul, but he comes up with so many different explanations for this evil uh-huh. thing that he has done. Yeah. And none, and you can tell that's just like Iago. He says it, he says multiple times in Othello, it's because of this, it's because of this. But really when it comes down to it, he just did it because he's he there is a well of evil in his soul, just as there uh-huh. is in all of us. And instead of restraining it, as what is that's what civilization is for, right? That's what we um, that's what that's what human are trying to create these systems that keep people from doing those kinds of things, right? So, um, yeah. But and and in this, one of the great inversions of Macbeth is that whether it's fate or free will or whatever it is, the point is that he not only has no restraint, but he is the king, the keeper of the civilization that's supposed to keep people from doing stuff like this. And he's the greatest sinner and perpetrator in the land. So as we go through Act 5, we see kind of these just rewards that he gets as a result of that. But then what happens after him? And, I, and I, I'm going to bring in another tragedy uh, with Romeo and Juliet, which I love Romeo and Juliet. I think it is 
deeply underrated. I think it is just huh. as great as any of the other tragedies. I am I can't wait to do the Roman Juliet podcast, except you're gonna have to shut me up. You'll be like, stop talking. <laughs> you have said all the things. No, no one no no one else will have too much to say, so you're fine. <laughs> um, but I here's what I love about Romeo and Juliet. Well, there's multiple things, but at the end of Romeo and Juliet, their death reconciles the society. Mm-hmm. Because they loved each mm-hmm. other and died, then the society is made right again. Mm-hmm. Over here with Macbeth, I'm not so sure. Maybe, maybe, but the play leaves it open that it is that that this was a a just a judgment on one man, and maybe the land is reconciled because Malcolm, you know, he 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 shows some evidence of virtue, but he also is the one who urges Macduff to sublimate his grief into anger. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it is still open to, I think you can make a case for both sides of whether or not this play ends on kind of that, the turning of the wheel again, if we're, to, if we're, if we're going to talk about the wheel of fortune and you, know, you get to the bottom of the wheel, then it comes back up again, right? That's how a lot of the right. Shakespeare's yeah. plays go. Once you get to the bottom, you just are like, oh, well, Hamlet's dead. That's too bad. But Fortinbras seems good, right? So that's, I don't know about Macbeth. Maybe. Part of the reason I, I don't like the witches appearing at the end, Heidi, is that I just want to have our pretty things for a little while. I mean, right. it, it really does. It's like all of human experience tells us that this victory over Macbeth is must be met again with the pursuit of justice because bad guys are always coming for the throne and their lackeys will always enable them. And like everything about human experience says that this is the case. And I don't think by ending a story without um, showing the coming evil that's just around the corner without doesn't make us think that um, Shakespeare is like, flying from reality in any way. It's like I just I just. I just want the opportunity to rest briefly in this world where justice has been done and the prospect of um, harmony and happiness exists. Mm -hmm. And I get it. I 100% get it that the world is a constant combat. you need to keep the things that are good, good, and to keep the things that are bad, you know, a- away from their meddling discourse with, you know, what's true and what's just and what's beautiful. Mm. Um, yeah. So that's part of, that's the reason that's the, I've been thinking as you were talking, like it could end either way. Why do I object so strongly to the witches appearing at the end of the play? Um, because I'm like just I think I'm just so painfully aware of how unjust the world is, and I don't think there's anything wrong with having us hold in a moment 
where we can see that the efforts of good people to do good things makes a difference. Right. You know, right. it's an exhausting play. It's not quite as claustrophobic feeling as Othello, but in Othello, there's one, there's one evil, right? Or there's, there's Iago has tempted Othello to evil. And with Othello's death, again, the, the whole world of the play is made right again. Yeah. Macbeth has a more complex contemplation to it. And because it's so complex, it's also very tiring to read and to watch performed. And so I think you're right. I think if, if, if the ending was so ambiguous as to, um, as to not offer any kind of justice or resolution, then this, Nope, this play would not have endured because it's just too much. Yeah, right. right. So I think that you're absolutely right that there at the end, Macbeth and Lady Macbeth and you know the, the his fiendish queen or whatever it was that he says, his fiend-like queen, they're dead. They're they're dead. And a young man is on the throne who is rightfully there. His uh He's the heir to the throne, and now he's been replaced. He's been cleared of the mm-hmm. of um, the false accusation that he was the one who murdered his father, um, and the land is reconciled to the proper leadership again. And that all is good. Like mm-hmm. the reversals in nature have been undone or put made right again. I think that that you yeah. have to see that at the end of Macbeth. The question of whether or not there's still flaws in the society that would lead to another tyrant coming to the throne, or that that's more the question of ambiguity, but not whether or not Macbeth yeah. died and the rightful king is on the throne. That is just a fact at the end of the play. Hmm. Can I tell you guys a story about our production of Macbeth? Mm-hmm. Um, this does not, I was reluctant to share the story because this does not reflect well on me at all. Oh, I'm excited. As I was getting, (laughs) as I was getting ready, you know, it's a huge line load and I'm memorizing, 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 you know, as we're auditioning and we're getting maybe we're a week or two away from opening night. And I had been a student of mine who had graduated everything but his thesis would read, he would read with me and help, you know, make sure that I was getting the line. So we would kind of do this exchange. I was helping him organize his thesis. He was helping me memorize my lines and he would feed me lines. So his name's Brian, a great guy. He's a, he's a teacher in the Czech Republic now. And he, but he was really struggling with his thesis. And every time he showed up, he would have rearranged his thesis or have new, some new idea. <laughs> Meanwhile, I'm playing this character, this like totally bloodthirsty, narcissistic, you know, insane person. And it's starting to get to me. It's really starting to get to me in a way that I know now how to kind of like keep a character hopefully a little bit at bay um Hmm. so this one afternoon (laughs) uh, i shouldn't be telling the story i i do my lines and brian helps me and i can just tell the characters kind of i'm getting i'm angry my fuse is shorter so he's transitioning to start working on the thesis and 
you know, Brian's just changed it again and he's changed it each of the last, you know, X times that we've gotten together. And finally, I just sort of snap, like, Brian, you've got to get this together. You keep changing your thesis every time. I'm like, I yell at him, like this sweet kid. I yell at him and I get done yelling at him and I'm not like a full throated yelling at him, but I'm, I am definitely <laughs> hot and aggressive with him so much. And I see his eyes kind of light up and he's like, what in the world huh? just happened to you? And he's it was like, one of do the, that, do that but, on stage. <laughs> right, right, right. But I like, after I closed my like rant at him, I seriously, I could not believe what I had done. Like, this is a student. This is like a young man that's in my care who is doing me a real kindness by helping me. And I just yelled at him over his thesis. And I really do think it was because I was just dwelling so long in this just horribly dark play. It got to me. It genuinely got to me. And I in it, like for a couple of weeks after the play was done, I just felt like I had to scrub it out of me. Hmm. Sounds like what Daniel Day Lewis would talk about. One of the reasons why he retired, huh? Because it takes a toll on him. Yeah, I just be going in and out of these characters and and the mental dexterity that it forces you to to be able to process being that character right and and he of course he would be he was a method actor he would be very very in character <laughs> and i think you know he would stay in character even when they weren't shooting and that you know that just it would, felt like it was consuming him he, he talked about that so this this is interesting that you mentioned this because it brings up this other question that i alluded to earlier and and that i had uh written down which of these, by the end, who's more insane? Right. Who's who is least themselves? Who's more insane, Lady Macbeth or Macbeth? Although maybe insanity is the thing that makes one of them more themselves. <laughs> <clears throat> but right. if we accept the idea that the rightful heir, the rightful person becomes king, the kingdom is set aright, there's some ambiguity on whether this is a cycle that will repeat itself, all things we've talked about. But in terms of these two characters, which would we say that Macbeth at the end is has descended into insanity is that what we would say he is and has lady macbeth you know is she is she, is she insane is that what we would say is wrong with her because the doctor's trying to figure it out right 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 he even goes to macbeth and macbeth's like ah oh, just solve it <laughs> i i i think the answer about lady macbeth maybe we could talk about that one first is clear i think she's gone insane i think what the doctor the doctor's confusion or his lack of remedy has to do with its cause. I mean, I think that he would acknowledge he's insane, but what is the source of the insanity? She knows something she should not know. Yeah. Um, and he has no physic to heal it because it seems to be a malady of the conscience or of the soul. Mm-hmm. Um, the way Macbeth- I, don't mean, I don't mean to dismissive and say like, Oh, that's not like a really hard question about Lady Macbeth. I just think that the more complicated one is Macbeth himself. Right. And that's why I kind of asked about degree because Macbeth recognizes the insanity of Lady Macbeth. He says, he's talking to the doctor. He says, canst thou not minister to a mind diseased? Diseased. Mm -hmm. Pluck from the memory of a rooted, uh, 
pluck from the memory a rooted sorrow, raise out the written troubles of the brain, and with some sweet oblivious antidote, cleanse the stuffed bosom of that perilous stuff which weighs upon the heart. <clears throat> so, you know, he, he, uses the, he calls her mind diseased. He talks about written troubles of the brain, um, rooted sorrows, yeah. the, the, the intersection of the heart and the mind there in the conscience. Um, so he seems to be very, he seems to be saying she's diseased. So right. the question that I had is, does he recognize it in him, in his own self? Does he, does he right. see that in his, in his own self? Right. But, and, and I'm not trying to make something complicated. That's simple. I just, this is my real question. It's this, and I'll refer again to, uh, Romeo and Juliet when, when, uh, Romeo makes that very melodramatic statement that every actor always messes up when he says, I, I am fortune's fool, right? That's, I, I would look at that and say, he is fortune's fool. He's actually telling the truth, mm. right? And there, that, if you want to see Romeo as being just this melodramatic adolescent, that's fine. But in a sense, he is fortune's fool. He has fallen in love with a woman that he cannot have. And, and now his life is irreconcilable. Hmm. And everything goes against him. Every The messenger misses, doesn't find the, the priest. All these things happen that make him fortune's fool. And I look at Lady Macbeth the same way. Is she insane? Maybe. Or maybe she's actually seeing things clearly for the first time. Just if... If we do accept the presence of supernatural forces in this play, which of course we have to because the witches are there, they're objective facts within the world of the play, maybe there is a blood spot on her hand that is a constant reminder of her guilt and she can't sleep because it's darkness and so she needs the light, but there's nobody there to give her a priest. There's nobody that she, she is descending into a madness that is actually appropriate for the deed that she has committed in a supernaturally dark world. And so is she insane? Yeah. But that seems an insanity that's actually in that that's appropriate. There's a decorum to it. It's it's in keeping with the cause. Yes. Exactly. It's just one and, piece with the cause. Right. So maybe it's more real than we want to face. Again, then that makes the terror even more compelling in this play. It, I was thinking a lot about how the play seems to associate um, uh, guilt with, or the conscience, the work of the conscience, a, a burdened conscience uh-huh. with mm-hmm. insanity. Right. Yes. Or is it insanity? And I think that is the question I'm asking. Like, maybe it's not insanity. Maybe it's just the hell of their own making. I, we're kind of running into word trouble because I think yeah. that what, you're, yeah. what I hear you saying, Heidi, is not that she's not insane, uh-huh. but also that her, it's like, it's an insanity that is sensible. And usually sanity, insanity is not, uh, how do we, <laughs> I'm running right. into word trouble myself. Right. It's, it's a sensible insanity. Right. It's like, a sanity that, yes. an insanity that, that came, it 
Like, yeah, given so, what she did, or she should. Yes. For example, if I started not being able, I have not, let's say I have not murdered anybody, which is 100% true. I never have. So if I start waking up at night, seeing blood spots <laughs> like on my hands. I like that you hands, feel like you have to say I've, that. Just clarify. <laughs> attention, <laughs> attention listeners. Murder-free zone. But if <laughs> I start waking up at night, seeing blood spots on my yes. hands and pacing around, thinking that I have committed a murder when I haven't, I'm insane. Yes. Lady Macbeth, I don't know that I think she's insane. I think she is just actually seeing in the sense of she lives in this world inhabited by darkness. I think it's the same kind of thing happening to her that happened with Banquo's ghost. If we say that the dagger was real, if we say that Banquo's ghost is real, maybe there really is a spot of blood on her hands that is tormenting her and that's her existential void. And that's the great terror of this play, I think, is that everything is embodied in the natural world that's happening in the spiritual realm. And so the and, and insanity would be a disconnect between those two things. But here we have, she actually did do that murder and she is doomed. Her soul is lost. And we're seeing that play out in her body. Mm-hmm. And I think that's happening to Macbeth as well. And But Macbeth, again, he's courageous and there's no doubt about that. He goes down fighting. He, is, he has disconnected himself from his own inner life. He will not. He's killed his conscience. He is nothing but an inhuman monster at this point. And, and that's his insanity, which again is in keeping with the characterization of Macbeth throughout the course of this play. So they're kind of reaping the just results of what they have done. So, Heidi, you made a joke that I'm going to make you. <laughs> this was off the air. That I'm going to make you read the oh, no. tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow speech. Um, oh, but, yeah. Yeah, yeah. This is going to happen. So, so, I was wondering if that speech ties into what we're talking about here. Right. Does that I, speech yes. explain or explore this concept? So, um. Yeah, why don't you read that? <laughs> All right, which scene this is, is it? This uh, is scene five, five, five. The so, most um, famous Satan, Satan has, uh, whatever, <laughs> however we're pronouncing that, has well, come in. Satan uh, is perfect. The queen, the queen, my lord, is dead. And then Macbeth gives his famous speech. All right. You see it? Yes, I do see it. I'll, you I don't do, have to do I it. I have the opportunity to. <laughs> <laughs> I hear someone talking herself into, like, saying what she thinks that she ought to say. <laughs> I do me? love saying this monologue. Yes. I really love it. <laughs> um. All right. So Satan has just told Macbeth, the queen, my lord, is dead. She should have died hereafter. There would have been a time for such a word. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. And all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle. Life's but a walking shadow a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury. 
signifying nothing. Like silence so, is the appropriate response to that speech, yeah, right? Yeah, it is. <laughs> so it's a tale told by an idiot. And there's 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 this concept of insanity again, though, right? Or meaning. Sound and fury signifying. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, well, I think that, he, I mean, isn't that... The definition of insanity. Right. And so you're right to bring up the question of insanity. It is central to this play. What does it mean to be insane? And it's funny, David, because I I take this as him in a perfectly lucid moment. I mean, I think he's been barking orders, you know, he's been resisting his destiny. But I think this is a lucid moment. And what's funny, the earlier passage that you read when he's speaking to the doctor, cure her of this disease. Mm-hmm. I I take that as him. I mean, obviously this is up to the, the actor, but I think the beginning of that is insanity. And I think by the end of that, it's a lucid moment again. I think he recognizes, no, my wife, my wife can't be cured. Cure her of that. Canst thou not minister to a mind disease, pluck yeah. from her the memory rooted, a rooted sorrow raise out the written troubles of the brain and with some sweet oblivious antidote cleanse the stuffed bosom of that perilous stuff which weighs upon the heart doctors can't do that right yeah you know it's just, it's like that's a grace problem mm-hmm. or a, a malady that can only be addressed by grace but i think at the beginning of that speech he is still in his he he still believes that um it's, it would be possible for the doctor to do that. And I, I would play it as, no, he gradually realizes this is an impossibility. And I think he's lucid again in the speech that Heidi just beautifully performed for us. <laughs> I think he, he sees exactly um, what his life has become. So do you, th- as she was reading it, and when I read it, you know, this this time again, in my mind, he's talking about Lady Macbeth. So it's interesting to think about. In, in some ways, it's a, you almost would read it differently, or, or at least think about it differently. If he's talking, if when he's talking about these ideas, he's talking about the life of his wife as opposed to his own life. Mm. And and I've been trying to figure out is is he is Macbeth in tune with how evil he's become, or is he? putting off or is he pro- projecting it on and through other people? Is he blaming other people? Is he primarily see them as the problem? Um, this, and so I, it seems like he starts here thinking about his wife's life and then it shifts midway through to, to, his, yeah, to him yeah, thinking about his right. own life. It, he's, he's thinking about her and then it moves into this almost despair for his own, that, mm-hmm. that his life has gone a certain way based on his own actions. Um, he seems to me, and I don't know how you played him, Tim, but he seems to me so frantically self-protective right now that there's mm-hmm. no time for any kind of underlying contemplation until now. Oh, right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So whether or not, I don't know. I mean, it seems like he would know how evil he was, but maybe not 
meditate upon it, maybe not brood on it or mull over it. He's just so frantically self-protective. Like he's, he's, I mean, just, I've, I've always seen him played and I think it works really well with just this excess of nervous energy right now, beyond nervous, but just maybe insane, maybe, um, just like the adrenaline thumping all the time. So, so do you guys think that that is because of, because he is worried he's going to get caught and, or is it because his mind is gone? Like, is it fear and anxiety or is his mind gone that that leads to that franticness? Right. I think it's fear and anxiety. I, I think his mind is functioning pretty well. Um, you, I think that part of the terror of of not wanting to die, to go back to his open his monologue, um, if it were done, when it is done, then twere well it were done quickly. He talks about, man, if we could just kind of jump the afterlife and do what we wanted to do here, I would kill that king. Right. You know, and I think that he's he's hyper vigilant about protecting his life because of what happens in the afterlife. And I think every English person in the play, I'm not in any way claiming that they all are like church going folks, but Christendom is well established enough that a strong, vibrant vision of the afterlife, I think would be in every listener's mind when, when we see Macbeth worried about his own, you know, like hyper vigilant against dying. I think he knows he's like stands to go to hell. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Which in his shoes, you'd say, okay. So, do I want to spend eternity in torment, or believe uh-huh. that life is meaningless? Uh huh. So that's you know maybe maybe he's picking a lane here, and still yeah, right. and maybe still in self protective mode, which I've never thought of before. I'm not necessarily advocating that but because I, I think he's probably telling he doesn't sound like he's trying to talk himself into believing this he sounds I like agree. he's just like like when when you lose he he loved his wife like they they loved each other and then they lost each other because they both mm-hmm. did wrong mm-hmm. and now no more than anything else i think this is the thing that makes him see what exactly what lady macbeth says in act 5 scene 1 what is done cannot be undone this yeah. is the moment i think he realizes that it's really sad this is such a sad it's play a, it's a really sad play boy the psychology of macbeth i think Oh, I just think it's just so good. I it, his everyone is an enemy. After he kills Banquo, everyone is a potential enemy. Even his wife. Even he, his wife. He treats her, he distances her, treats her with contempt. Yeah. There's this story about Stalin. After Roosevelt died, the US ambassador woke up Stalin at 3 a.m. And if anyone had a heavy blighted conscience it was joseph stalin right and he he wakes up stalin and he says um our president has died roosevelt he died today and the story is that um stalin kind of was quiet for a half a minute and then he offered his condolences 
And then he really wanted to make sure that an autopsy was done on Roosevelt to determine whether or not he had been poisoned. Huh. And it, that just, that's such a Macbeth moment. Huh. You know, like Stalin, I think, had to have been obsessed about the things that he had done. You know, some estimates have 60 million people died during Stalinist, huh. the Stalinist regime. Um, and of course, I would think that Stalin is constantly worried about his own death. And he's constantly seeing all of the people in the Kremlin that are around here as potential threats. And of course, Roosevelt would be the same way. Roosevelt, of right. course, he would kind of like paste that on Roosevelt. He would be the same way. Right. I just, it's, such a, it's such a, I think Shakespeare is so good at getting that, we're calling it madness. And it is madness, but it's a madness born of of terror, like the, the terror that's weighing his, on his conscience. Right. I think. Yep. It is psychologically consistent with the the effects of trauma on the mind, as well as being spiritually consistent with the effects of evil of this magnitude upon the soul. Yeah. I think that's what makes this play so richly layered and absolutely brilliant and deeply it's, sad. Mm-hmm. It's funny that you mentioned Stalin, Tim, because Stalin, it, <clears throat> my understanding is that in Russia and Georgia, where he came from, not the Georgia you came from, the other one by Cyprus. <laughs> um, he, yeah, we, uh, wouldn't, we wouldn't, yeah. We'd neither <laughs> claim him nor allow him to persist in our state. That's... <laughs> So in Russia, and in my understanding is in Russia and in Georgia, the country, his reputation has um, increased mm-hmm. in the last couple decades. Um, of course, he's known for mass, you know, repressions and ethnic cleansing and executions and overseeing a country that was devastated by famines and not doing enough to help it. I mean, you could go down the Wikipedia page and just find lists of things that he did that were terrible. Starving Ukraine. And so, the, yeah, to death. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but at the same time, he brought, he made, you know, for in Russia and in Georgia, they're looking at it and saying, well, he, he pulled Russia out of uh, a terrible dire straits after the revolution and you know he you know all the things that he did to bring russia back on the map as a world power and you know so so you get these he becomes a very complicated figure in Mm -hmm. the places that he's from i mean we don't look at him as complicated right typically Mm -hmm. we're going to look at him as like this hitler type character yeah really you know but 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 in some ways how people what people experience because of someone like that can complicate things so much. And so it, it was, I was thinking about how, I was thinking about how whether Macbeth is, is complicated. I mean, it's obviously his psychology is complicated, but is he also pure evil? Um, by the end, um, I've we talked about insanity and how these characters have changed and, you know, the, the conscience seems to be really, going after Lady Macbeth in particular. But the question of whether you need to talk about someone like Hitler or Stalin, and it's, you know, you say like, oh, that's pure evil like Hitler or something like that. Yeah. And I'm not saying that Macbeth oversaw, you know, the kind of 
atrocities that Stalin or Hitler did. But if you're looking at, you know, this question of, of evil is certainly at play in, in this play. And so at the end of the play, I mean, have, once he's died and we look back, to what degree are we supposed to look at this guy and say, this is an evil, evil man? Right. Right. Well, and I think that what, what Shakespeare accomplishes in, as Tim pointed out, the, the high tragedies and something particularly with Macbeth and Othello, I think, when you have these protagonists, these central characters that are that do something so profoundly evil, or a series of things that are so profoundly evil that have no justification for them, and yet by the end of the play, if you're paying attention, you still acknowledge their humanity. Yeah, and I think that that is one of Shakespeare's greatest contributions. Um, is his very that this this cord this river of humanism that runs through every character it, it every every one of his plays with every character um even in Richard the 3rd which has the biggest villain right of all of the shakespearean canon you still have the speech that he gives the night before when the ghosts show up and 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 it and it humanizes him and mm-hmm. that is compelling because that is also true for Stalin and for Hitler um, and for the great villains who actually lived and walked on the earth. They were born with the image of God and so fractured it that it was hard to see it by the time they died, but it was there. And they distorted it and inverted it and corrupted it and made themselves diabolical the same way Macbeth and Othello do. But they're still human. And that doesn't mean that we justify what they did or try to feel sorry for them. That's the great problem with modernity and the anti-hero shows and movies. That's like, you know that when you're watching Breaking Bad, you're supposed to feel sorry and make excuses for Walter Wright, right? Like, But that's not yeah. what Shakespeare's doing. Hmm. He's saying, judge this man harshly. He, is a, he lives and dies a villain. And yet he was the greatest tragedy of Macbeth is not what he did to Duncan, but what he did to himself. And that's true also for Shakespeare, for, for all of the great, you know, villains in, in history. I, I saw a movie called Downfall about. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's brutal. Chilling. Yeah plays Hitler and what's so for me was so chilling about the movie was back up. The source material for the movie was taken from, correct me if I'm wrong, David, the diaries or maybe I think diaries written by his, by Hitler's secretary and his bodyguard. And the author of the movie got this source material and wrote about Hitler's last few days in the bunker as the allies are sweeping into Germany and mm-hmm. he knows it's over. You know, he basically, you discover in the movie that he knows he's going to either be captured or killed. And what's so chilling about it is how sweet and tender Hitler is to the people that he's with. You know, he, the image of God is still there. He still cares about these people. And it's a lot, it would be less chilling if you could say 
He was pure evil. I share nothing in common with that guy. Mm-hmm. But it's hard to it's hard to do that with this movie. Because you see that he still like had tenderness left in him. Right. Didn't mean that he didn't do the things that he did. Right. But he didn't completely he wasn't of a different order of being as you and me. Right. And that's what Solzhenitsyn talks about. Wouldn't it be better if you could say there are evil people and there they just are and they should yeah. be destroyed. We should get rid of them. But he goes on. That's where the famous line from Solzhenitsyn comes. The dividing line between good and evil is in every human heart. Mm-hmm. It's a decision that we make. And Hitler chose to be evil. Macbeth chose to be evil. But there was a there was a time when that choice was made. It wasn't that he was born that way. Right. And in and, and Shakespeare's great tragedies, we see that. We see that even in some of the later romances with characters like Caliban or Malvolio or, you know, these in Twelfth Night, these, what he does with, with his characters is he never lets them become caricatures. We always have right. to face the fact that these are human these are human beings just like us. And the dividing mm-hmm. line between good and evil goes through their individual souls. They're not just on the other side of the line while we can be over here thinking bad thoughts about them. Yeah. So I guess it's time for some for some final thoughts. We'll do Q&A next week if we get some questions, but some final thoughts on Macbeth. How do I let you go first? I need, I need to get going. Sure. Um, yeah, so I... I just wanted to point out a line from Lady Macbeth that I think is really cool based on a conversation we had about knocking in our first, I think it was our first recording of the play. He's, hold on, I have to find it. Okay. So uh, again, Shakespeare starts these threads that he kind of throws out. Um, in the beginning of the play, you should see me doing hand motions right now, throwing out hand motions. <laughs> throwing out threads. <laughs> yes. Uh, that kind of pop up again and again if you're thinking of the play as like a tapestry. You know, you kind of forget about it for a while and it'll pop up again. And um, and it's fun with students and on our own to kind of trace those threads throughout the play. And one of them that I, that I brought up at the beginning was that this – this idea of knocking, that that the supernatural knocking, the porter at the gates. Um, and in Act 5, Scene 1, uh, on line 56, Lady Macbeth says, To bed, to bed, there's knocking at the gate. Come, hmm. come, 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 give me your hand. What's done cannot be undone. To bed, to bed, to bed. And there's a lot going on, I think, in these just few sentences, that idea of going to bed. Again, we talked about sleep and how Macbeth has murdered sleep, um, that the restoration of the human spirit is in sleep, body, mind, and spirit. And yet Macbeth and his, and Lady Macbeth cannot sleep by the end of the play. Um, and then there's that knocking theme again. There's knocking at the gate. I think there may be some literal knocking happening, but I, I think that there's a double meaning here that that she that darkness is coming for her and she knows it. Hmm. Um, and then and then this one, the come, 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 give me your hand. And I think this speaks to her alienation and loneliness that she is she has been cast off by her husband and 
she has cut herself off from any kind of human connection so much so that even though they're there with her holding her hand and every production I've ever seen, she's touching them. And yet she's still, she's still reaching. She still wants to connect. I think that this, these few lines um, are like really powerful. This is, I think her scene of profound alienation and grief of what she has done. And those lines, I think, encapsulate it. Mm. All right. Well, you have to go. So we'll let you go. And then we'll, so if you need to. I got nothing nothing to add. That's a good way to end. All right. Well, let's do it then. So we will be back next week to answer questions. Our next play is, I believe, Othello, right? I think so. Yeah. Oh, so exciting. We'll be discussing More Othello next. reading. That's fun. <laughs> T- TBD on exactly who's going to be on that. I know you're going to be on that, Tim. You yes. kind of you kind of I insisted on it. Yeah. yeah I don't want to say begged. I'll say insisted. <laughs> insisted. Yes. Asked. Advocated. Advocated yeah, huh? by yourself. Demanded. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Ruled. Overruled. Um, thanks to you both for... Uh, for talking about Macbeth. You uh, picked up some slack yeah. when I had to go take care of floors being ripped out of my house and also when I couldn't be here because of flooding in my house. So I appreciate that you uh, picked up the slack for me and proved that I probably don't even need to be here anyway. So <laughs> from now on, I will just <laughs> not right. be on. Uh, so this was great. Macbeth's a terrifying, uh-huh. strange, brilliant play. And uh, you know, I think even over five weeks, you know, it's what we did eight hours or something total. feels like you barely scratched the surface. Mm-hmm. Right. So mm-hmm. hopefully we gave people something to, you know, if you're listening and you have questions, don't forget to post them, send them to close podcast at gmail.com or on the Facebook page. Don't forget. You can follow the network over on Instagram as well. Uh, this week we are starting uh, sense and sensibility on close reads and we will be reading chapters one through eight. And that will be with our new special guest for that series, uh, Karen Swallow Pryor, author of On Reading Well. Uh, so I think you will really love hearing from her and getting to know her. As we just mentioned, uh, Tim and uh, some TBD other people will be talking about Othello next year on The Place of Thing. And we have Libromania, The Daily Poem, and lots of other great content. So make sure you're subscribed. If you are up for it, we would love if you could leave that star review, leave that written review. It really helps us out and goes a long way. And it also helps us uh, know um, what we can do better, what people are liking, all that sort of thing. So as always, thanks for listening. For Tim McIntosh, for Heidi White, and for all of us here at the Close Reads Podcast, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening and happy reading. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.